Welcome. Church of the Advent is an Anglican congregation in Denver, Colorado, that seeks to share in the life of God by redefining and reorienting everything around the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hope you are challenged, encouraged, and move closer toward the gospel by this week's message. Merry Christmas. That was a church calendar test, which you both passed, or you all passed. Um, This is the Christmas season, and contrary to the culture around us, we celebrate Christmas starting on Christmas Day. Everybody else celebrates Christmas, I don't know, usually sometime around Thanksgiving, early November, if you shop at Target, probably in September. Us, we observe a season of Advent, and then we move into Christmas, which begins on Christmas Day and lasts for the 12 days of Christmas until Epiphany. So this week, we get to celebrate Christmas, all of us together. But I'm going to be honest. Um, I'm Luke, by the way, if we haven't met. I'm part of the church family here at Advent. Uh, I'm a little bit a little bit nervous to be sharing the word with you today because of the way that Christmas fell on a Monday, we only have one Sunday during Christmas season this year. So the responsibility has somehow fallen to me to preach the one Christmas message you're going to hear at Advent this year. <laughs> Thanks, Jordan. I have Jordan's vote of confidence, I guess. Um, not only that, but we're also, this, the gospel text is John 1, which is like probably one of my favorite passages in all of scripture. And there is no way I can possibly do it justice in the 20 or so minutes we have, unless you all want to stick here for a couple hours. So we're going to try to just take a high-level view of things. There's no way we can dive into everything. I want to just take a high-level view at overall what this section of the Gospel of John is doing. Um, And so rather than kind of going through line by line, what really has helped me in my study is actually looking at the overall literary structure of the passage. I found this to be super rich in my study looking through verses 1 through 18 of John. And so that's what I want to do together today. And fundamentally, at a high level, the question I want to answer is, what does it actually mean for God to be with us? So, We're going to start by looking at the literary structure here. Bear with me. We're going to get a little bit technical, and then we're going to extract some themes from this and use those themes to kind of inform our exploration together today. So um, if you have a Bible, this would be a great time to turn to John 1, because we're going to look through here verse by verse uh, briefly while we paint the picture of the structure. Um, So feel free to open up to John 1. Now, this is uh, the prologue, often called the prologue to John. It's setting the tone for the rest of the gospel that is to follow, and it it kind of gives us a picture of the trajectory of the work that Jesus is doing and its cosmic significance. Uh, And it's written from the perspective of someone who actually knew where the story was going, someone who had lived and experienced this, who had witnessed the story. So I have a slide here which will help us as we're reading through of the structure. Uh, at least the structure that, that I've, the way I've been thinking about this. So we start in verse 1, in the beginning was a word, word was with God, word was God. We have the section at the beginning about the word being situated with God and things being made through him. Then in verse 4, there's a little bit of a pivot because we start talking about, well, in this word was life and the life was the light of men and the light shines in the darkness. So we kind of pivot to this place where now we're talking about the word actually being amongst humanity in some way, shining light into the darkness. Verse six, there's another pivot. Now we're talking about John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness. And we talk about John the Baptist through verse eight. Then in verse nine, another shift. 
talking about the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. world. He was in the world. world was made through him. world did not know him. And he came to his own, and his people did not receive him. So now we're, we're saying something about how people are responding to the word who's in the world, right? Okay, verse 14. Now there's another shift. Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It almost feels like we're starting over at the beginning. We're talking about the word coming down and being present in the midst of humanity. Humanity saw his glory. And then again in verse 15, John the Baptist bearing witness about the word. Verse 16, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So again, something about the response of humanity to the word. And then at the end, we have what feels a little bit like a conclusion. No one has ever seen God. The only God who's at the Father's side has made him known in verse 18. So if we go to the next slide, the way that I've been thinking about these themes are we have our introduction, and then we, we have these two, we have these six sections, and they're parallel passages. Like they have, they match up with each other as you go through under one theme. So there's this theme of presence that we read about in verses 4 and 5 and 14, the theme of witness with John the Baptist from verses 6 through 8 and 15, and then what I'm calling response, how people are responding to the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us, and then a, a concluding section at the end. Um, now, I should say, uh, as much as I would like to say I'm the first person to have ever noticed this structure in the Gospel of John, I'm not. A lot of scholars have done a lot of work examining the structure of the Gospel of John. This uh, particularly is adapted from someone named Mary Collot. She's a scholar and an Australian nun. She's written extensively on the book of John, and it's really helped me in my study. So this is what we're, we're going with this week. And Overall, the structure here has some really interesting implications, which we're going to get to in a bit. But first, I want to start just with these basic themes that we've drawn. So it all centers around the witness of John the Baptist. And his testimony follows starting in verse 19 after we go through the prologue. And the third pair of sections that we have here has a clear call to what our response should be uh, and th- what our response to the word should be, this thing that John is witnessing to. And I think it's pretty clear that our response actually should be receiving. We see the language of receiving multiple times in the text. Verse 12, to those who did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God. Verse 16, from his fullness we received grace upon grace. So here's the question. If this thing that John is bearing witness to is it, he's calling us to receive. We're being called to receive the word, the thing that John's bearing witness to, then what does it look like to receive something? My premise is that in order to receive something, you need to understand something about what it is and what it does. And only if you understand what something is and what something does can you properly understand what it means for you to receive it. I'll give you an example. You, you may have experienced something like this before. My kids love making art at home. We go through reams and reams of paper, and they'll scribble things on little scraps of paper, and I'll be sitting in my office, and I'll see like these little fingers slip under my office door, and they'll be shoving some crumpled up piece of paper under the door, like some sort of offering of a piece of artwork that they leave on the floor, and that I'll go later when I'm done with my meeting or whatever, and I'll pick up these scraps of paper, and usually it's just like indecipherable scribbles of some kind. I have no idea what it is. I don't really know what to do with it. I don't know how to receive it. So I put it in a pile on my desk, and I kind of collect these throughout the course of the week. But every now and then, I come to understand something about what this picture is that they've made for me. The kid will tell me, here's what this thing is. And all of a sudden, there's so much more significance attached to it. I have an example for you. There's a picture up here. 
This is something that June slid under my office door a couple years ago. And I was like, huh, those are some cute rectangles and little T's or TIE fighters, or I wasn't sure exactly what she was doing there. <laughs> and uh, then Jude said, no, 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 Dad, this is church. And I was like, oh, I see it. The stained glass. She was like drawing the colors out of the stained glass windows and doing these rudimentary Jerusalem crosses, I think, that she was trying to do. And suddenly this thing that I received became so much more significant and beautiful. I could actually receive it in a way that I couldn't have received it before. So the question I want to pose for us this morning is, if we're actually to receive this thing that John the Baptist is bearing witness to, what is it? And what does it do? And what does that mean for us? So I think we can go back to our slide with the themes, actually. Uh, We can answer the question, I think, or start to answer the question of what it is by looking to the introduction. So in the introduction, at, at the very start, we read, in the beginning. So this is a pretty clear parallel back to the creation account in Genesis. But here, what we're reading is that in the beginning, instead of just saying God created the heavens and the earth, we're getting some more nuance The Word was also with there, and the Word was with God and somehow also was God, and everything came into being through Him. So it's like John is just trying to tell us, okay, dear reader, this this is actually how God created the heavens and the earth, through His Word. And we see that pretty clearly in Genesis 2, this concept of the Word creating things. There's a repeated structure in Genesis 1. God said, let there be light. God said, let there be an expanse. God said, God said, God said, God said. And each time after God says, we read later that it was so. So John is putting this really clear Trinitarian lens on Genesis for us. God was there. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, but all these things were being created by His Word. Now think about the significance of your Word. Like, what does it mean to say you're going to send Word to someone? When you're sending Word to someone, your, your Word is, is, you're sending yourself. It's something intimate. Uh, your Word, it's like pulling together things that are in your heart, things that are in your mind. There's a sense in which your words are you. And yet, your words can sort of also be separate from you. You can send them to someone. So they're both you, but they're also distinct. So the imagery of the word is useful, and it's powerful in English, but the Greek adds another helpful layer of historical perspective here. Uh, The Greek for word is logos. You've probably heard this word before. It's used in a handful of different ways um, in Greek philosophy. Notably, it's often referred to as it's kind of this concept of an impersonal principle of order. It's this underlying sense of reason that's holding the cosmos together. And what John is saying here is, well, this logos, this, this word that's holding the cosmos together, it also is God. The logos is not some impersonal, immaterial principle of order. It is a specific person. And we remind ourselves of this in the creed each week, don't we? Eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him, all things were made. So, if that maybe starts to tell us a little bit about what the gift is, then the next question is, well, what does the gift do? What is the word here to do? And for that, I want to look at this first theme of presence that we see in these two parallel sections. First, let's start with verse 4 and 5. In verse 4 and 5, we get this imagery of light. 
And this is a callback to Genesis as well. God said, let there be light. There's light and darkness back in Genesis. And light is actually, it's a useful image for us today, right? Light can illuminate. It can provide a sense of warmth and vitality and security. But light can also be uncomfortable. Uh, Lisa and I have something that I'm going to call the universal law of hotel bathroom lighting. And the way that the universal law of hotel bathroom lighting works is that every hotel room that has a bathroom, the lighting comes in one of two modes. Either it's this gentle, beautiful, radiant glow, the kind that gives like a little sparkle in your eyes and you feel like it's like something that would be the lighting at some magazine photo shoot or something like that. Or it's this super, super bright, harsh light shining on your face from some weird angle and you look in the mirror and you think, what happened? (laughs) That is the universal law of hotel bathroom lighting because light doesn't just like warm us. It doesn't just provide us a sense of security. Light also exposes and being exposed can be uncomfortable. Sometimes there are things that we don't want exposed. When Jesus comes into the world with his uncompromising light, we have a choice. We can strategically avoid the light We can hide in the shadows and just come out into the light when it'll show us at our most flattering angle, or we can welcome the light and accept that we can only be truly known in our complete and utter vulnerability. Now, there's also a sense of directionality that I want to highlight here. It says the light is shining into the darkness, not the other way around. As people who are born into a metaphorical darkness, we don't need to stumble around blindly looking for some light switch in order to bring the light somehow to us. The light is coming to us. So now let's shift over to verse 14. We see the theme of presence here as well. Verse 14 says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, moved into the neighborhood, as Eugene Peterson says, and we have seen his glory. So the Greek for dwelt here is skenao, which means to tent or to encamp, but it's derived from the word skene, which means tabernacle. So this is interesting because, in a sense, this noun, tabernacle, is sort of being used as a verb here. You could translate this as the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, which, of course, brings us back to the Exodus. The tabernacle was the place that Yahweh dwelled in the midst of his people. And we, this is reinforced by this imagery of glory that we get. We've seen his glory. In Exodus 40, we read about the glory of the Lord filling the tabernacle. It's this reminder that the word that's moving into our neighborhood, that, that's pitching a tent in the midst of our dusty camp, this word is also the very glory and presence of God himself. And similar to the imagery of light, there's a sense of direction here too. We are not hiking to some other place where God's camping and pitching a tent there and dwelling with him there. He is coming to us. He is dwelling in our midst among us. So together, this imagery of light and then this imagery of tabernacle glory maybe start to help answer the question of what the gift does and what the word came to do. He came to be the intimate presence of God among us. Of course, we know that isn't all that he came to do. The story gets way, way bigger than that. And the author of John has one more trick up his sleeve here, which brings us back to our diagram and the overall literary structure of this passage. See, the entire structure of this passage mirrors the structure of the Genesis creation narrative. It's not just in the beginning that's calling us back to Genesis. It's not just some of the shared imagery of light. 
But there's the same six-part parallel structure that we get out of Genesis 1 in the story of creation. It starts with an introduction. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then each of the six days of creation are structured in a parallel order. First, we have three days of things being separated. God separating light from darkness and water from sky and land from the water. And then we loop back around to the beginning and see each of these realms that were separated being filled. So for light, or for light and darkness, we see the sun, moon, and stars filling the sky. For water from sky, we see the birds of the sea and the fish of the air, land coming from the water. We see the plants and the creatures living on the earth. Each part represents one of the six days of creation. So John, in the very structure of the prologue, is bringing us back to Genesis. Just as Genesis is talking about the original creation of all things, John is talking about a second creation that's being kicked off in this story about the Messiah, a new creation. But there is a critical difference between Genesis and John's prologue. See, the creation story concludes with God resting, on the seventh day. In John, we're kind of left hanging. The prologue does not have a seventh-day equivalent. In that concluding sentence, verse 18, most translations, including ESV, they try to give it some sort of closure. No one has seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. But it still sounds sort of awkward almost in the English. And some scholars have noted that in the Greek, this actually is an incomplete sentence. It ends with the verb to make known, but it doesn't explicitly have an object there. So conceptually, the prologue to John ends with a hint of suspense, with sort of a dot, dot, dot. You're supposed to stick around for what's coming next, which of course is the story of Jesus, the Messiah. And then the question becomes, okay, well, if we're supposed to stick around for the story of Jesus, where is the seventh day rest? Where is the end of creation in this new creation? And for that, we have to fast forward to chapter 19 in verse 30 of John where Jesus is on the cross and he says, it is finished. And the word finished there is derived from the same root word as the word finished in the Greek translation of Genesis 2 when God finished his work on the seventh day and he rested. So the entire structure of the prologue to John is pointing to this massive story of new creation. The Word, who has been eternally present, the one who we call the the author of life in Acts 3, through whom all things were made, this Word came to us in this vulnerable way to tabernacle in our midst, to be a light shining in our darkness, and ultimately to usher in a new creation a new creation that is ultimately finished as Jesus took his seventh-day rest in the tomb before he was resurrected on Sunday morning, the start of a new week. And that, friends, is where we find ourselves today, the new week. And we don't just find ourselves in a metaphorical new week. We're starting a literal new week. It's Sunday, and we're also starting a literal new year tomorrow. And how do we receive this message? How do we receive what we've learned about the Word becoming flesh and dwelling among us? How do we receive this gift now that we know a little bit about what it is and what it does? Well, as the dust of Christmas begins to settle, we all come stumbling into the new year. And instead of taking the time to recover, to reflect on the incarnation thoughtfully, what do we do? We make plans. We make resolutions. We focus on how we're going to do all of this all over again next year, but it's going to be even better this time. 
Now, I'm not coming down on New Year's resolutions. I like to make them myself sometimes. I think they can be very helpful. But sometimes I think it's easy to slip into a mode where we are so focused on pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps and so focused on reaching towards some different, more ideal future that isn't here right now that we forget that we should be slowing down and receiving the gift of the present, of his presence. So as I've been studying this passage and reflecting on what the word came here to do, the thing that I kept coming back to over and over is this direction of movement between God and humankind is continually God moving closer and closer to us. In the beginning, we read about God breathing life into our nostrils and forming Adam and Eve. We read about him in the garden walking amongst his creation, seeking out the creatures that he made in his image. In Exodus, we read about him choosing to dwell in the midst of his people in the tabernacle. We read about him coming to people in burning bushes and clouds and dreams and visions. And then at Christmas, all of history comes into focus on the person of Jesus Christ, God choosing to come into our midst and become a human person, a living, breathing person, and shining light into our darkness, drawing near to us as he brings about a new creation. And then he brings about his new creation, and in John 20, we read about him breathing his spirit out to the disciples, and ultimately, at Pentecost, the spirit comes to dwell inside of all who follow him. So there has been this progression of God from walking among us in the garden to living among us in the tabernacle, to becoming one of us in the incarnation, and ultimately to dwelling inside of us at Pentecost by the power of the Holy Spirit. And one day, we read that there will be a new heaven and a new earth, a place with no darkness, and we don't need to go anywhere to get that either. Because in Revelation 21, we read about the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven and restoring us in this place and wiping every tear from our eyes. And then in Revelation, in, in verse 3, in chapter 21, it says, The dwelling place with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and he will be with them as their God forever. And that's what the Spirit's been reminding me of over the past week as I've been meditating on the mystery of the incarnation. Jesus came to us, not the other way around. He didn't make us come to him. The light was shining into the darkness. So here's the question. Why do we spend so much time fussing over ourselves? So much time reaching and grasping. Friends, God is with us. And we might not always feel it, but he's here. His very spirit is inside of us, making us lights that shine into the darkness and making us tabernacles that radiate his glory to the rest of creation. And maybe that's too hard for you to imagine, the concept of God drawing near to you, dwelling inside of you. Maybe you feel like you haven't proven yourself worthy to be in the presence of God. Maybe you feel like you're too broken to withstand his light shining into the darkness of your life. But Psalm 34 promises us that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves the crushed in spirit. 
Scripture reminds us over and over that He is holding all things together, even at this very moment. Colossians 1, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. By Him, all things were created and all things hold together in Him. Hebrews 1, the Word is the very radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His image, and He upholds the universe by the Word of His power. If God is that close, if He is sustaining us at this very minute, if He is dwelling inside of us, what are we trying to do trying to sort this all out by ourselves? If that is the actual reality of the way the universe works, how does that change the way we live our lives? How does that reshuffle our priorities or inform the resolutions that we're making today? So when we gather on Sundays together as Anglicans, chiefly the two main things that we do are we gather to receive the word and sacrament. This is what we do on a Sunday morning. And as Anglicans, we take very seriously the actual mysterious presence of Christ in the word and sacrament. And in a few minutes, you're going to be invited up to partake in the sacrament of Eucharist. And if you're a baptized follower of Christ, somebody is going to give you some bread and say, this is the body of Christ broken for you, and give you some wine and say, this is the blood of Christ shed for you. And when you receive that, you're not just remembering something that happened a long time ago you are having a real encounter with the Word Himself that's sustaining the entire universe at this very moment in the sacrament, with the author of life, with the one who was and is and is to come. That is what we're doing when we receive Eucharist. And if you haven't received Christ, that's okay, but just know He wants nothing more than to be close to you. That's actually what he wants. We sing in the Christmas carol, Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell. That's what he wants. All you need is to understand what that gift is and what that gift does, and then choose to receive it with open eyes. You pray with me. Jesus, we ask that this morning, as, as we reflect on you coming into the world, Will you help us let go of the things that are holding us back from resting in you in this present moment? Maybe there are regrets about the past or fears about the future. Maybe it's a desire to control our lives more tightly. Jesus, we release those things to you today, and we choose to rest in the power of your presence. Holy Spirit, transform us to be, to be lights in the darkness and, and temples tabernacles to your glory. And God, as we approach the table this morning, would you minister to us by your presence in a real and tangible and powerful way? Amen. Thanks for listening. We encourage you to take a moment to reflect on what God might be saying to you through what you just heard. For questions, additional information, and resources, please visit adventdenver.com.